This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Titus. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series through this book, and as you may remember, this letter is part of a collection of letters known as the Pastoral Epistles that include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and of course here, Titus. And they're unique in a sense uh, from Paul's other letters. Instead of addressing a church, for example, the books of Ephesians be, talks about it's to the saints who are in Ephesus, the church there. These letters are addressed to two specific individuals, Timothy and Titus, men who served as close co-laborers of the Apostle Paul, in fact, who were sent by Paul in their work in the missionary journeys as apostolic delegates to represent him and to continue the work of building up and establishing the churches that they had planted together. Particularly, they're to do this through combating false teachers and also by raising up faithful elders and pastors in these churches. When you read through 1 Timothy, you find that Timothy was left by Paul in Ephesus as Paul went on his way to Macedonia. So Timothy was to encourage and strengthen that church, which Paul had been in for three years prior. And then Titus, we learn in this letter, has been left on that island known as Crete. And there, it seems that Paul and Titus had labored together and churches were planted and were in their infancy. But he was left there by Paul, perhaps he was going with Timothy on his way to Ephesus at that time before leaving Timothy as he goes on to Macedonia. But he leaves Titus there to serve the church in Crete. So in a sense, we could say these are personal letters from Paul to his close co-laborers. But when you read through the letters, we find that they're not meant to be read only by Timothy and Titus. They're actually meant to be read by those very churches that they're serving. You can see that uh, in pointers to the letter themselves at the very end. So when you come to the end of Titus, you have this statement, grace be with you all, or y'all, right? We are in Georgia. And so it is meant to be read by the whole church. It's the plural form, and this is the same at the end of 1 Timothy, the same at the end of 2 Timothy. It always ends with that blessing, grace be with y'all, with you all. And so it is meant for the whole of the church there. These letters are not only to Timothy and Titus, but also the churches they served, where they were to be edified by them, equipped by these letters, to be able to both guard and to proclaim the good deposit of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that means something else, because as we come then to this letter, we're coming to it as part of Holy Scripture. So it was not only meant for the church there in Crete or the one in Ephesus, it's also meant for us. What we have before us is the very Word of God, 
And it is part of that apostolic doctrine that is the foundation of every true church. And so as we begin and embark on this study, let us do so remembering that this is the very word of God himself to us through his instrument, the Apostle Paul. And so let us learn how to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this word from God as the old Book of Common Prayer prays. So follow with me. We're only going to read the first four verses, and even then our focus in our message this morning is only on the first three verses. But let us hear God's word, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together again for the preaching of God's word. Lord, we come to you confessing that you alone are our rock and our fortress. And so we come and ask for your namesake that you would, even as we've already sung, that you would speak to us today. And in speaking to us, you would lead us, that you would guide us by your holy word, that you would remind us that you are the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to your own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So what are you living for today? What would you say to someone who asks you, what's the purpose of your life? Where is your life going? What is the direction that it's on? Well, these are certainly questions that I would dare say we've all wrestled with, and sometimes many times in our lives, not just once. These are the questions that all of humanity faces in this world. Important questions, questions of great depth and significance. But for many in what is often called our postmodern world, uh, they say that these are questions that can have no answers that we can't know the answer to the purpose of life because they see no greater meaning or purpose in life beyond themselves. That's all that can be seen by many in our culture. And for that reason, what do they do? They spend their life pursuing the things of this world. Work, pleasure, wealth, wisdom. But like the writer of Ecclesiastes, if they're honest with themselves, they find them all to be empty, things that bring them no real meaning or purpose. And like the preacher, they can say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this is the experience of all who only live from the perspective of life under the sun, who live only from the perspective that this world is all there is and no more, and therefore then give themselves to this world that is passing away along with its desires, as the Apostle John tells us. And the reality is we live in a culture that's full of people 
who are wrestling with that reality. And if we're honest, we also have wrestled with that reality in our own lives. And sometimes, even as Christians, we can still struggle with that reality when we forget the truth. And they, like us, long for more. Everyone in this world wants something that's lasting. They want want their life to have meaning. You want your life to have significance. You want to have a purpose. And the reason this is true is because God has put eternity into man's heart, as Ecclesiastes says. You are not just a creature that's here only for a time and gone, never to exist again. But when you deny God's existence and you deny God's eternal purpose in this world, then you are lost without purpose, without direction in your life. And this, as I said, was true of all of us in our fallen condition, separated from God, separated from hope in this world, separated from his word that brings that hope. And this was true even for the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter. He lived his life for the empty praises of men as a self-righteous Pharisee. He did all he did to be seen by others. The praises of men which is here today and gone tomorrow. That's what Paul lived for. So much so that he persecuted the church of God and even put his stamp of approval on the death of faithful saints like Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church. This was Paul's life until the Lord opened his spiritual eyes. You remember there on the road to Damascus, that bright light shining and the voice of the Lord speaking and his eyes were opened to see something greater than himself and his small purposes to see Christ and his grand purposes. Even in that moment, as he blinded Paul's physical eyes, that's when he saw the true things of Christ with his spiritual eyes. He was given eyes to see, even as he was blinded by the radiant glory of Christ's appearance before him. It was then that the Lord called Paul out of darkness into his marvelous light. It was then that the Lord revealed to him God's great purpose in the world, for the world. That purpose, which we could summarize as this, to glorify God's name in all the earth through the work of his Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to save sinners and bring them all the way home to dwell forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That is God's grand purpose for all things, the glory of his name and the salvation of sinners, that we would dwell with him forever. And it was then that Paul saw the true meaning and purpose of his life, as one who is part of this grand story of redemption that the Lord is unfolding in time and eternity. You see, this is the way then that we also come to see the true meaning and purpose of our lives, the true purpose of our church, when we recognize that it is part of something greater, the greatest thing of all, God's purpose in the world, God's purpose in Jesus Christ. Well, you may be wondering, why am I mentioning all of these things as we begin our study of Paul's letter to Titus? And the reason is this. That's what Paul is doing at the very beginning of this letter. He is situating what he is about to say in the grand story of God's purpose in the world. 
Now, like other letters in his day, Paul begins with that standard way of greeting. The author, the recipient, and then a word of salutation. For example, uh, the letter of Claudius Lysias in Acts 23 begins this way. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. It's the standard way of writing, what they learned in their Roman schools and uh, everywhere else, just like you children learn certain ways to write letters today. But unlike a regular letter, Paul expands his greetings and fills them with Christian content that foreshadow the very themes that will be further expanded in the letter itself. That's how Paul operates. And in fact, this first part about the author is so rich and full in his expansion here, which is an expansion only exceeded in length by Paul's letter to the Romans, it's so full that this morning we're not even going to get through the whole greeting. We're just going to consider this section on the author because he packs it with rich truth for us to understand. So it's in these first three verses that we're going to focus where Paul sets the stage for the rest of the letter by reminding his readers that this is no mere ordinary letter because Paul is no ordinary author and Titus and the Cretan church are no ordinary recipients, but their lives have been caught up in this grand story, history of redemption, the purpose of God in redemption. So it's in light of God's great purpose that Paul writes and that Titus and we are to receive what is written. So let us consider what Paul is saying here this morning uh, about his purpose and be reminded of our purpose in the light of God's great purpose. We'll see two things. We'll see first Paul's calling as a servant of God's word, and then secondly, Paul's purpose for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul's calling and Paul's purpose. So first, let's consider Paul's calling as a servant of God's word. And you notice that's how he begins the letter, Paul, a servant of God. Now, those of you who may know the original language, this word servant is more literally here or can be translated here as slave. He is a slave of God. And that was a phrase that would have been striking to the ears of those in Paul's day, even as it strikes us today as we hear the word slave. You remember in Greco-Roman culture, slaves were the lowliest in society, along with children. Slaves were those who did not belong to themselves. They were those who had almost no rights at all, particularly in Roman law, and who lived in submission to the authority of their master. It's a difficult life, for many masters treated their slaves with great cruelty. Some tortured them and killed them for sport. And so you can see that when Paul says he's a slave, that would be a striking statement. And it's a statement that's a humble statement, humbling himself as one who is under God. So Paul is stating that this is true of him. He is one who does not belong to himself. Indeed, he could say elsewhere, he's been bought with a price, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And now he belongs wholly and entirely to a new master, to God. 
Therefore, he seeks to live his life in complete submission to the will of his master. And beloved, this is true of all who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, this is true of you. You are not your own. You too were purchased at a price, the most expensive price of all, the precious blood of Christ, which nothing else in the world can compare with as far as its value. And therefore, you now belong to God, and he is your master. You are not your own to do whatever you please, but you are one who is called to align your will with the will of your king and of your God, of your master. Of course, the reality is this. Everyone in the world, whether they recognize it or not, is a slave. There is no human being in the world that's not a slave. The real question is not... Are you a slave? The real question is, who is your master? Because if you do not have God as your master, then you have sin as your master. You have Satan as your master. You are one who is still enslaved to your sin, captive to your own fallen sinful nature, rushing headlong to destruction because that is what your master seeks for you. That is your master's purpose for you if sin and Satan are your master, that you would be utterly and eternally destroyed. They are the harsh masters that beat and batter their slaves to death. But as believers, we have the joy of being redeemed from such a situation, bought away from that master that would seek our destruction, and taken into the care of our master, who's the only perfectly good master there is, our God, the one who is goodness itself, who loves us and cares for us. So Paul and you, dear Christian, are a slave of God. Praise God for that. And so he is a slave of God. But what you need to notice about this, these first few words in this description, this self-description, is that it's actually slightly different from Paul's usual self-description in his greetings. If you look through his other letters, letters, you'll find that he often says that he's a servant or a slave, but he says a slave of Christ. This is the only place in greetings that he says he's a slave or servant of God. Now, of course, it amounts in one sense to the same thing because we confess Jesus is Lord and God. He is God himself. So to be a servant of Christ is also to be a servant of God. But why does Paul nuance things here and say he is a servant of God? And here's the answer. Because Paul is connecting his calling to those who've had a similar calling in the past. You see, this phrase, servant or slave of God, is used to describe the Old Testament prophets who have that similar calling of receiving special revelation from God to give to God's people. It's a phrase used of Moses, of Joshua, of David, of many of the prophets of old. But particularly, we can say, it's used of Moses. We see in the Pentateuch itself that that Moses is called a servant of the Lord. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. The beginning of Joshua, he is called the servant of the Lord. But even later scripture that's reflecting back on Moses and his role as the greatest of prophets, as it were, of the Old Testament 
in the Old Covenant. It uses that exact phrase, the servant of God. For example, 1 Chronicles 6.49, which may be, certainly is one of the last books of the Old Testament to be written. It says this, But Aaron and his sons offered sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that the Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Moses, the servant of God, who is the mouthpiece of God to speak the oracles of God to God's people. That's what it means. And that's why Paul takes up this phrase. He's connecting his calling to God's grand purpose and redemption that's been around since the beginning. This is not something utterly new in one sense, but has its roots and foundations in that which has come before. One commentator put it this way, Paul's central concern at the outset is to anchor his ministry in the story of the covenant God. Thus the emphasis on God. Believers are God's elect. God has promised eternal life. God, our Savior, commanded Paul to take up his ministry. With that long story in mind, moreover, it is fitting for Paul to align himself by the use of the title with obedient servants of God who preceded him as recipients of revelation. So you see, he's drawing the minds of his, of his readers right away to this bigger story that's bigger than even their own lifetime that goes all the way back. It's stretching back even to Moses. And so he's connecting his calling with God's past work in the Old Covenant. But he doesn't stop there. He brings it into the present by stating, secondly, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle is one who is sent representing the authority of the one who has sent them. Perhaps a modern-day example in our world is that of an ambassador. We think of how our government has ambassadors that are sent uh, to other countries to represent the interests of our nation before them, and in certain senses to represent our government and perhaps even the president of our nation in certain ways. They go as ambassadors not with their own authority, or on their own authority, but as those who are sent with and on the authority of the government they represent. And that is what it is to be an apostle here. It's to be an ambassador, a representative, a sent one. Now, some in the New Testament are called apostles with what we might call a a little a. And that's referring to those who are sent, for example, by the church, They're sent with the authority of the church to represent the church. Sometimes in our Bibles, that's translated uh, not by the word apostles, but in our English translation, messengers. Paul uh, talks about messengers of the churches that were sent to help bring the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. So they are messengers. The word there is the same, apostle, but it's used in that sense of one sent by the church to represent a church, a local church in that way. But that's not what Paul is here. We could say, in a sense, he is an apostle with a capital A. That is one who is sent directly by Jesus Christ himself, with the authority of Christ himself. In other words, Paul was in the office of apostle. Now, we need to remember the qualifications, then, for that office. How is it that someone could be called to be an apostle? 
Well, there are a couple things to remember. Uh, first, they have to be one who's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, all followers of Christ are disciples of Christ, but not all followers of Christ are apostles. So there's more to it than that. Yes, Paul was called to Christ and had faith in Christ and was a disciple of Christ. But more than that, an apostle was one who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Someone who saw with their own eyes the risen Lord Jesus. Certainly we can see how the other apostles saw the resurrected Lord after after that resurrection or on the day of that resurrection and even after as the Lord appeared to them over that 40-day period before he ascended into heaven. What about Paul? Well, you remember, Paul is one who saw the Lord there on the road to Damascus. Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In 1 Corinthians 15, he then describes, uh, describes himself as the last of the apostles. He says it this way, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. It was there on the road to Damascus that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and he saw him with his own eyes. And so, yes, it is a disciple, but a disciple that has seen the risen Lord Jesus with their own eyes, they're an eyewitness to his resurrected glory. But that's not enough because Jesus also appeared, as we just heard, to 500 brothers at one time. Are they also apostles? No, they're not. (laughs) Because there's one other important qualification And that is, the apostles are those who are personally commissioned, directly appointed by Jesus Christ himself. And this is what we see Jesus doing with the other 11 as he commissions them. Matthew 28, yes, it's a commission that applies to the church, but it's given to the apostles. It is a work they are to do. We see it there in Acts 1, before he ascends into heaven. You will receive the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and you will be my witnesses, eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, witnessing to my resurrection glory in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But he also is one then who commissioned Paul. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Jesus himself commissioned him and appointed him to that office. One important implication of what we've just said about the qualifications of apostles is this, that there are no capital A apostles on the earth today. That's because there are none living on the earth today that have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and have been personally, directly commissioned by him. And so all who claim to have such an office do so falsely, and we would be wise to beware of them. For if they do not understand this office of apostle and apply it to themselves, how can we trust the words that they speak? Remember it this way, the apostles are those that are considered the foundation of the church. 
together with the prophets and Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. That foundation has been laid and does not need to be laid again. That was laid in the age of the apostles. But now the structure of the church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so the apostles, yes, they still live, but they live as those who are in heaven. And what they have left for us is that apostolic word, that apostolic deposit that Christ gave them to give to the church. So Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, commissioned by Christ, and in continuity with the servants of God of old, the prophets of old. This is his calling. It's a calling into this grand purpose of God in redemption. But what is Paul's particular purpose as an apostle? What is the purpose of the prophets? In other words, what is he commissioned to do specifically? And you can see it at the end of this section um, on the author, verse 3. He is commissioned as one who is to preach. Preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. Paul has been called to preach, to proclaim the message, a message that he is entrusted with for safekeeping because this message is a treasure, a treasure to be guarded, a treasure to be appreciated and delighted in. It's entrusted to him by none other than God the Father and Jesus Christ. This treasure, this message is none other than the gospel message a gospel message that centers upon the very person and work of Jesus Christ. In the other pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, that he serves and uh, the law itself is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There he says what he's been entrusted with. It is that good news, that gospel message. And in fact, what we can say is, is the very message that the Old Covenant prophets spoke as well. It is the central message of the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Moses was not proclaiming a different message than Paul proclaims. We need to understand that. We need to recognize that. Jesus himself, you remember, when speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, said this, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Genesis through Deuteronomy is really all about that Messiah, that king to come, the one who will crush the serpent's head. Moses spoke of Jesus. You remember how at the end of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus himself. He opens up the minds of those disciples on the road to Emmaus to understand what they did not see before that all of the scriptures, beginning with Moses, are about the work that he came to do and accomplished. Or again, as Jesus appears to his disciples, it says at the end of Luke, Luke 24, 44, Jesus says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's the one message, the same message the great work of redemption by Jesus Christ. That's the message Paul has been entrusted with, a message he must guard against error that it would be kept whole, pure, and entire. 
a message that he must proclaim with every opportunity that he gets, and a message with which he must entrust others with so that they too can proclaim this same message elsewhere when Paul's not around and in other generations when Paul has gone to be with the Lord. That's what he's commissioned to do, to preach, guard, proclaim, and entrust the very message of the gospel that he's been entrusted with. And you'll notice that language. He's been entrusted with this preaching of the gospel by the command of God. And that word, command, it's a word that is a military word. Those of you who are in the military, you understand. If you are issued orders, an actual command, this is not a suggestion from your superior. (laughs) This is something that you must do. How much more when the one who commands is God himself, the commander-in-chief of commanders-in-chief. And here he issues his royal decree. And so he reminds Titus, he reminds the church in Crete, he reminds us that he is not speaking on his own authority here, but on the authority of God and Christ, the king and head of the church. So what Paul is giving to us is the very word of God. It is inspired revelation that Christ gave him by the Spirit to give to us. Christ has appointed Paul to be an organ of God's revelation to his people, and Paul is under orders to faithfully deliver his message to Titus, to the church in Crete, and even now to us today. This was Paul's calling. He was called to preach the gospel. That is this great purpose of his that God has given to him as a part of God's greater purpose in redemption. But what is the end or the goal or the purpose of this preaching? Why is he called to preach? What part does the preaching play? And that's where we come to consider our our second point, Paul's purpose as an apostle, as a servant of God, as a preacher, Paul's purpose is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul does not just preach into the air so that his words go out and fall and do nothing, but they are words that are effective because the Spirit of God attends those words and the voice of God, as it were, is carried upon those words and the voice of God is always powerful and effective. That's what we read in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord thunders and things happen. And so he is an instrument that the voice of the Lord might be heard and proclaimed to the end that the elect might have faith, might believe in this Savior, in this gospel message. He's a servant and an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, I want us to understand how Paul is using the word faith here. You may know that when the word faith is used, sometime, sometimes Paul uses it in this kind of objective sense, meaning what it is that you believe in, the content of your faith. For example, Jude uses it that way, 
where he says that we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that content of what is to be believed. But also it's used in that subjective sense, we could say, that is believing itself, having faith. And that's the sense that's being used here that the elect would have that faith where they actually believe what God has said. They actually put their trust in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior. But again, consider how he phrases this. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And here we're reminded of at least three things we can say about uh, this faith. And the first is, that this faith itself, this believing, is a gift from God. Because it's the faith of God's elect. God's elect. A doctrine that is meant to be precious to our souls and a comfort to us. Not a doctrine that's meant to keep us wondering and questioning and, and keeping ourselves at arm's length from Christ. But a doctrine that says, look, You do not have the power within yourself to believe. But God, even before you were ever born, before the foundations of the world, he's the one who chose you, who elected you, that you may believe. And so the very faith that you have is a gift given to you by God as God's elect. He chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, yes, to be adopted, but also to believe, to have faith, to trust in this Savior. And so don't think that your Christian life depends upon the strength of your faith or you yourself somehow mustering up faith. No, it's a gift that comes from God. And yet at the same time, another thing that's important for us to recognize is it is something that you must also do. No one else can believe for you. Children, your parents can't believe for you. You must believe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, as Sam Waldron puts it, one of the two things you must do to be saved. Repent and believe. And so it is something that each of us personally must have with the personal faith. We ourselves individually believing on, resting in, reaching for, and taking grasp of the Lord Jesus for ourselves. But the third thing to note about this faith when he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, he's saying this in the context of one who's called to be a servant, an apostle, a preacher. And that is a reminder that this, that this gift of faith comes through the instrumentality of God's word preached and proclaimed. Even at his conversion, you remember the words of God to, or Jesus to Ananias, when he says to him that Paul is called or chosen to be an instrument. He says it this way, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He is that instrument through which God's name is proclaimed, salvation is proclaimed as that herald and ambassador of the king. And so it is through this work of proclamation that faith comes, that the gift is distributed, that those who must believe do believe. 
Isn't this what Paul says in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this is his purpose, to be that mouthpiece of God, who to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that as that word goes forth, the Spirit of God attends that word and brings dead hearts to life, those who could not believe to faith so that they do believe, and they can live and walk by faith now all their days until they are called home and their faith is turned to sight. That's the purpose of preaching. For this faith, yes, to first be be born in God's elect people, his chosen people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. But also for that faith to be strengthened and increased and to be able to to grow as we are called to grow in the faith that we have received. It's not a gift that's meant to be left to the side, but it is at the very center of our walk with God that we are those who are called to walk by faith. And this is the way our confession puts it. You can see in our bulletin, I put the words there. In paragraph one of chapter 14 of our confession, it speaks of faith, of saving faith, saying this, it's the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. It is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. You see, that's just summarizing what we have unpacked here in the first verse of Titus. That God gives this gift of faith and it's wrought, it's brought into being by the Spirit of God working through the preaching of the Word. And then it's further increased and strengthened also by the preaching of the Word along with the other means of grace like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Beloved, it's an important thing to recognize this in a real sense, is the calling of your pastors, your elders. As we seek to minister the word of God to you, we do so for this purpose, for the sake of your faith, that your faith would be born in you if you are not one who has faith, and then that your faith would be increased and strengthened, rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, and growing up so that it bears the fruits of faith. This is what Paul is saying. His great purpose in this world is to be used as an instrument of God in his great plan of redemption to speak God's word for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Isn't that glorious? What a purpose. Before we close, what else can we say about this faith? This faith that if you're a Christian this morning is your faith is what you possess, is the gift that you've been given. And I'll seek to be brief here, but to note six things about this faith that we see in the rest of this passage. What can we say about our faith? First, our faith is a reasonable faith. Notice how he says, it's for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Our faith has a content. It has knowledge. It is, in that sense, we could say, reasonable. 
So often today you hear and see slogans like this, you just got to believe, right? Or believe in yourself. And sometimes there's this call to be a people of faith. But this call is just to be one who has faith in what? Faith in faith. Faith in believing, because I believe. <laughs> and more often than not, as, as I said, it's, it's actually to have faith in yourself. You see, faith always is something that must grasp onto something else. It's something that always has an object, something that you're putting your trust in. You're sitting in a chair right now. You're putting your faith in that chair to be able to hold you up, right? The object of your faith in that sitting is the chair itself. But here there is an object of our faith, which is not ourselves, but it is Jesus Christ himself. That's who we trust in. And it's a reminder that faith itself, we talk about, theologians talk about it having kind of three parts. It has first knowledge of the truth, then assent to that truth as being true, and then it has trust entrusting yourself to that. And you must have all three to have saving faith. But that means it is a faith that has knowledge. It's an important thing in our day when many, even within the Christian world and the Christian church, uh, tell us to askew knowledge, to not be concerned with that. Um, we just need to be people of faith in this kind of ethereal, eph ephemeral, squishy kind of way. But we must be reminded that our faith has a content, and it has reasons, we can say, for faith. Faith and reason are not antithetical to one another. The problem with the fallen man is that his reason is darkened by sin because he's still enslaved to sin, and he doesn't accept the truth of God's revelation. But we have been given eyes to see this revelation, and it is on the basis of what has been revealed the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we have faith. It is in him that we have faith. And so remember, beloved, that it is a faith in the knowledge of the truth. And part of the preaching of the word then is to increase your faith by increasing your understanding, your knowledge of the one whom you have faith in. Most especially our preaching should be that which is filled with Jesus Christ, that you come to know him more in his loveliness, in his beauty, what the sacrifice he made for you is and was in all its details and contours so that you can be in awe of him and love him. Your faith has a content. Let us be a people who grow in the knowledge of the truth. But also, secondly, you can see that it's a faith, we could say that's a living faith. It's a faith that which accords with godliness, he says. This word godliness, you find it throughout the pastoral epistles. And so often it is speaking of the working out of your faith in practice, living it out in a godly life. For example, in my prayer earlier, I quoted from, uh, from Timothy, where he talks about those who don't have true faith. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They're in their externals doing external things like the Pharisees did, but they don't have true faith. Therefore, they don't have the power behind it. But true godliness 
is that which acts and lives according to the truth that you believe and know. Living in such a way that others can recognize you're believing something. You're believing in someone. And they see it by your words and your deeds. It's a faith that's an active faith. It's a faith that's a living faith. You remember how James puts it, faith without works is dead. Because it means you don't really believe. Because if you really believe what Jesus has said, your life will be transformed. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in your actions because we still have remaining sin. But it does mean the direction of your life, what you give your time to, what you give your, your money to, what you're doing with your life, that's changed so that your purpose is aligned with God's purpose, the glory of his name, that we are a people who have a living faith. I think it's helpful to recognize that this phrase, godliness, it is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the phrase, the fear of God. That's what's behind this idea of godliness, the fear of God, that we are those who live quorum Deo before the face of God. And in everything we do, we remember that God is with us and we are doing it before him. He sees all and knows all. And our desire is to please and honor our master and king. So when you see in the Old Testament, Wisdom. What is wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To live wisely means to be living as one who fears the Lord in the very presence of the Lord. And therefore, your life will be one who has a living faith, godliness. But the third thing we can say about this faith, it's not only a reasonable faith, a living faith, but it's also resurrection faith. Notice what he says which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Oh, this idea of hope is not the way you and I often use hope. I I hope it's not 110 degrees outside right now. I'm still not used to the temperatures. (laughs) It's not a kind of hope so kind of a thing. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But this is that biblical usage of hope, that sense of a certain hope, because God has promised it, and it will come about. And so that's what it's looking forward to. And this hope particularly is of eternal life, life that will never end, life that's rooted and grounded in communion with God forever. Because remember what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, to know God and the one whom you have sent. And in this world, then we are surrounded by death all around. And we are confronted with the reality of our own mortality. Isn't that a word we need? That there is eternal life? And that if you have faith in this Savior, you have and possess right now eternal life? This is the very thing that was promised to Adam in the Garden of Eden in what theologians call the covenant of works or the covenant of life, that if he had obeyed the Lord, if he had done what his commission was, which you could summarize by saying it is to image God by kind of exercising dominion, to 
cause the whole earth to be a place where God's glory dwells and to fill the whole earth with other image bearers that reflect God's glory. If Adam had done that, if he had obeyed God, not eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been blessed with eternal life. That is, a righteousness confirmed forever to become unchangeable and to live and dwell forever in the presence of God. But we know he sinned. He failed. And because of that, he plunged all of humanity under the wrath and curse of God. So what we know in this world so often is death. We're surrounded by death and the reality of death. You know in my own personal experience that I have experienced that more um, after the pandemic in 2021. It was a year in which I was called upon by the Lord to conduct 12 funerals, including the funeral of my own mother face-to-face with mortality, face-to-face that because of sin, our life comes to an end. But the good news is this, it doesn't have to because there is one who came, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us this gift of eternal life that we can have what Adam lost Through Jesus Christ, because of his work on our behalf, we can know eternal life with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. We can know the blessing of resurrection life, a blessing that if you're a Christian, you know right now as one who's been spiritually raised from the dead and one that you will know bodily at the end when Christ returns, when you have a glorified risen body along with a glorified soul to be forever with the Lord. This is the goal of it all. This is what drives Paul in his work in hope of eternal life. This is what should drive us in our work as well as we remain on the earth. That we have a resurrection faith. That we will not be those who remain in the grave. Nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even death itself. So we have a resurrection faith. But then notice as well, the fourth thing here is it's a certain faith, a certain faith. He goes on to say about this eternal life, which God who never lies promised before ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching. It's a certain faith for three reasons. First, because of the one who promised it. God who never lies, or as other translations put it, God who cannot lie. He has promised, he has said, if you are trusting in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life. You will be raised to die never again. It is certain because I, God, have promised it. And it speaks then to the very nature and character of God as the one who is truth itself, the one who is faithful and trustworthy himself. This is what we read earlier in Numbers, in that prophecy. Balaam was not able to curse because he had to say what God said, and God had promised blessing, and he would not revoke it. And so Balaam must bless Israel. And he says he is God who's not like man, 
a God who does not lie, who cannot lie. We'll see that this is an important point that Paul brings forth in the context of Crete. Because as we'll see later on in this very letter, what does Paul do but quote one of their poets saying, Cretans are always liars, but not our God. He never lies. And because he is the one who has promised this resurrection, our faith is certain. But it's not only that. When did he promise these things? It's promised before the ages began. It's something that occurred even before creation. It goes back into the decrees and counsels of the Holy Trinity in what the theologians call that covenant of redemption. There, the promise is made from the Father to the Son as we are seen in the Son as those who are chosen in Him for eternal life. The promise that if you, Lord Jesus, if you, my son, accomplish this work, then your reward will be the redemption of these people I have given to you. It was promised from long ago in God's unchanging eternal decree. Therefore, our faith is certain. The third thing we can see is this. It's not just something that's decreed in the past but it's something that has been unfolding in the present and continues to unfold throughout history until its completion. That's why he says, and at the proper time was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. In a real sense, we can say the manifestation of this promise of eternal life comes right away in the garden. God himself is the first preacher of the gospel as he curses the serpent and speaks of the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. It is then preached by Moses, of course, Abraham, Noah, and others. But in the written word, Moses gives us those first five books. The other prophets proclaim this message, and it continues to unfold until the coming of Jesus Christ himself, the long-promised one. He has come, and he himself preached, repent, and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now in that long line of preachers, Paul is one who's called to preach as well. And this faith then is something that's rooted in the decree of God, rooted in the unchanging nature of God, and is present and going forward in this world. And therefore, this faith is a certain faith. But it's also what we could call a biblical faith. Because at the proper time, it was manifested in his word. It is a faith that's rooted in the word of God, revealed by the word of God. In days past, yes, it was through these prophets and apostles who could speak that word of God directly from God to God's people. In the presence, it's through that inscripturated word that he's given to us, this completed canon, so that we can see and know this good gospel that's been entrusted as that good deposit to the church. And so it's a biblical faith rooted in the word of God, in the scriptures. So all that we do as a church and all that you believe must be rooted in this very word. God is speaking to us through the pages of scripture. So it's a reasonable faith, a living faith, a resurrection faith, a certain faith, a biblical faith. The last thing I want to remind you of is it is a saving faith. 
Notice how verse 3 ends. With which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. God, our Savior. He is the one who saves us. It's not something uh, that we find so often in Scripture. But we'll see it a couple of times in this letter. God being called our Savior. And of course, Jesus will also be called our Savior in this letter as well. It reminds us that our God is a God who saves. It reminds us that we are those who are in need of being saved. Saved from our own sin. Saved from our own slavery to sin. Saved from the very wrath of God that our sins deserved. But the character of God is one who is a deliverer, who is a savior of his people. This was true in the Old Testament. So you find this designation for God there. He's God, our savior, the redeemer, the deliverer of his people. He redeemed his people of old out of slavery in Egypt. But our savior has redeemed us with a greater redemption out of slavery from sin. And so we are to remember all of the instructions that come in this letter as coming from the one who is God, our Savior, and who has given to us this gift of faith that saves us from what we really deserve so that we can have what we don't deserve, but which has been purchased for us and given to us by the grace and love of Jesus. Eternal life. reconciliation, resurrection with God forever. Is that your faith? If you're a Christian here this morning, that is your faith. And that is your calling and your purpose to be one who believes in this Savior and who continues to walk by faith. You see, Paul has set what he's about to say and what his whole purpose in doing in this grander purpose and calling of God. His life is caught up with God's grand purpose in redemption. And dear Christian, your life also by God's grace has been caught up with God's great purpose in redemption as well. You have a purpose. You don't need to go about your life as though you have no meaning. You don't need to be one who struggles and despairs of no hope. You have a certain hope and a certain faith. And so, beloved, be reminded of these things this morning. And remember to live each moment, each day, in the light of God's grand purpose for you. But perhaps there are some of you here this morning, I know there are some here this morning who are not Christians. And you're going through life without a deep sense of meaning. You're searching You try to find meaning and purpose in the things that you do, and maybe you find it for a time, but it's fleeting. And so you feel the vanity of life apart from God, apart from Christ. The good news is this, that you too can be a part of God's grand purpose. How? By coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus Christ by faith and finding that Jesus is who he says he is, a friend of sinners and our only Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your goodness to us, that you have not left us to ourselves and our own devices, but you have equipped us and furnished us with all that we need for life and godliness.
You've given us your word. Lord, we pray this morning that you would take that word by your spirit, that you would press it deep within us and enable us to be those who live and walk by faith to the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.